Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. Today's Good Friday message is entitled, Your Substitute Awaits. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. For centuries, the people of Israel executed those guilty of blasphemy and sexual immorality and other horrendous crimes by stoning them to death. This all changed when the Roman Empire took over and conquered uh, the country of Israel and occupied it and introduced them to a form of capital punishment called crucifixion. Crucifixion was not just a form of execution, however. It was also a torture tool and a powerful political statement. Historical and archaeological records reveal that thousands of people, as much as 30,000 I've read in some documents, were killed by crucifixion in the four centuries that Rome occupied Israel. So many, in fact, that it was very commonplace to see crucifixions taking place in various villages and cities, and sometimes they had so many of them happening that they ran out of wood in town. Criminals that were sentenced to crucifixion were first flogged with a whip that was sometimes called a cat of nine tails. It uh, had wood handle with leather strands containing sharp animal bones, teeth, uh, pieces of metal and rocks uh, tied to the end so that literally it would shred the skin off the back and the legs and the buttocks of the prisoner. This beating was intended to weaken the victim Uh, into submission for the next stage of the process. The crown of thorns and the purple robe were something extra, not normally done uh, to a prisoner. Uh, Purple robes and crowns were common things that royalty wore. And so this robe and crown were given to Jesus as a way of mocking his claim to be king of the Jews. The crown, though, was not made of jewels or in gold. Rather, it was made of thorns. And as it was placed on his head, it was pushed down so that the thorns would penetrate his scalp, thus adding to the pain that he already had endured from his flogging. Next, the prisoner was forced to carry the crossbar of his cross uh, on his shoulders through the city on the way to the site where his public execution would take place. This parade-like scene was intended to humiliate the prisoner and to discourage others from committing the same crime. And as he would carry the crossbar on his shoulders through the village or the town or the city, he was escorted by Roman soldiers carrying a sign stating the crime he had committed. Once at the public execution site, the prisoner's wrists and ankles were nailed to the stake and crossbar. A sign with the prisoner's name and the crime he was accused of was then mounted above his head on the stake so that the entire community could see what this criminal was guilty of. Public crucifixion was the Roman Empire's way of saying, in essence, if you want to steal or you want to be... uh, 
kill somebody, or if you want to be an insurgent, then this is what will happen to you. You're not only going to die, you will die a slow, agonizing, painful death. So if, if you don't want to die like this, then do what we tell you to do. After the prisoner was erected on the cross, Roman guards were told to remain with him uh, until death set in. This was probably to make sure that the prisoner stayed up on the cross, but also so friends and family wouldn't try to take him down. They would sometimes offer the victim wine mixed with myrrh to help numb their senses, but in Jesus' case, he refused to drink it. He wanted to feel all the pain. And although the reading in John doesn't mention that specifically, it is mentioned in Matthew 27, verse 34, and Mark 15, verse 23. The most common causes for death on a cross were blood loss or asphyxiation. This is because hanging on a cross put a tremendous amount of pressure on the diaphragm muscles, uh, making it very difficult to breathe. And so sometimes prisoners would take days to die, depending on their health and depending on other various factors. But other times, the Roman soldiers would speed up the death process by breaking the legs of the prisoner so they couldn't push up to breathe, causing them to die sooner. Good Friday remembers and celebrates the crucifixion of the innocent man, the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Passion story is read uh, for the first time with fresh eyes, there's an unavoidable question that comes to mind, at least for me, and maybe it does for you. And that is, why would Jesus allow himself to be subjected to such an experience? The practical answer to that simple question is, well, he did it for you and for me. The theological answer to that question is also simple. He did it to be a substitute. The dictionary defines a substitute as a person or thing acting or serving in place of another. The Apostle Paul talks about the implications of Jesus being a substitute in Galatians chapter 3. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 3. And if you uh, forgot your Bible, just raise your hand, and one of our ushers will bring one to you. I want to show you a couple verses uh, out of Galatians 3 that talk about this concept of substitution. It sometimes is referred to as atonement as well. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. There are two simple truths I want to share with you tonight. You can jot down on the outline that's on the back of the service order you received when you came in this evening. Um, uh, two simple truths I want to give you. The first thing that Paul tells us here about Jesus being a substitute is that uh, trying to earn your salvation 
is an impossible burden. Trying to earn your salvation is an impossible burden. Paul says in verse 13 that Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law. Now, in our English language, a curse is a, is a solemn oath or a prayer uh, meant to inflict harm or injury on someone, especially someone maybe you don't like. Now, in the context of Galatians 3, uh, this curse has a double meaning. First of all, it, it refers to the burden of perfection. You might want to jot that down under number one. Uh, it, the curse, the first meaning of it is the burden of perfection or perfectionism, that, that need to be good enough to save yourself, to earn your salvation. Apart from Jesus Christ, the only way a person could have a relationship with God and get to heaven was by perfectly keeping the Old Testament law. Now, obviously, this is not possible. All someone has to do is watch the nightly news or America's Funniest Home Videos. I sometimes watch that show with my kids on ABC, and I don't know about you, but I find myself watching America's Funniest Home Videos and going, okay, that, that's why Jesus had to come, right there. You see, trying to jump off a roof, do a 360, and a flip into a kiddie pool and not get hurt, yeah, that's, uh, that, that kind of person right there is why Jesus had to come and save these people right there. You know, just, I find myself watching videos going, oh, this is going to hurt. This, how do they think this is going to work out well, jumping on plywood to use it as a catapult for somebody inside a house? You know, just the crazy things that people try. So the curse is, it's a reference to the burden of perfection, but the other meaning for it, you might want to jot this down as well, is uh, the other meaning for curse in this context is the eternal consequences for sin. Jesus rescued us or redeemed those that know him personally from the consequences of their sin. Romans 3.23 says that all, all of us, including myself, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And as a result of falling short of God's standard of perfection, we have earn the wages of death, according to Romans 6, 23. So this creates a problem. Uh, the existence of our sin in God's character creates this impossible problem to solve, or at least it seems impossible. We were created by God to have fellowship with him, but our sin separates us from him. We weren't capable of meeting his standard of perfection, and God had to remain true to his character by punishing sin. Enter Jesus. So here's the second truth on your outline. Number two, the second thing that Paul tells us about the curse and Jesus being a substitute is that Jesus earned your salvation because you couldn't. Jesus earned your salvation because you couldn't. He did so by becoming a curse for us, according to verse 13 of Galatians 3. Well, how? How exactly did that work? Well, Jesus did it by fulfilling the moral perfection, or fulfilling the requirement of moral perfection that God required, and taking upon himself the full consequences of our sin. 
Recognizing our hopeless situation, God realized the only way to reconcile rebellious sinners back to himself was by sending a substitute, a person acting or serving in the place of another. And so he did so. Inspired by love, motivated by grace, and saturated with mercy, the Heavenly Father offered up his only Son to be a curse for us. The New Testament teaches that anyone who repents of their sin and by faith alone trusts in Christ alone for their salvation will receive Jesus' perfect moral record in exchange for their imperfect one. Jesus allowed himself to be cursed so we could be blessed. One of the reasons why Jesus Christ has always been and will always be the hero of our worship services, and this is not the case in every church, but he will always be the hero of our services here at Vanguard, is because like a hero in an action movie, he said to his father, take me so they can live. Take me so they don't have to die. So Jesus was a substitute. He earned your salvation because you couldn't. Now, you know we like to talk about applications here at Vanguard. There are two that come to mind that I want to leave you with this evening. What do we do with Galatians 3, 13, and 14? What does this mean? Well, it means that I can't earn my salvation. It means that Jesus earned it for me. But then what do I do with that? So here's two applications for you. Um, the first one uh, I call application A is that if, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are a Christ follower, don't whitewash your sin to justify it. Don't whitewash your sin to justify it. I have a growing concern in the last few years that I've noticed in the universal church amongst believers is that some professing Christians erroneously think they were already on their way to heaven, but just accepting Christ as their Savior sort of guaranteed they were going to get there or made it easier for them. When in actuality, the scripture says we are born on the highway to hell and that we have to be rescued from that and transplanted into the Lord's kingdom to be saved. And only Christ can do that. But the problem with this thinking and the lie behind this unbiblical thinking is that is it some professing Christians that think they were already on their way to heaven, basically what they're saying is that their sin is not as bad as other people's sin. However, the scriptures teach that just because you're a sinner that doesn't make the nightly news doesn't mean you're better than the sinners that do make the nightly news. We sort of have this ranking scale for sin. You know, like the terrorists at 9-11, they're right up there near the top. You know, and then there's the sex offender down the street, and then there's the person who hurt me, and then so on and so forth. We kind of rank sin. 
But here's the thing. The scriptures teach that a husband's adulterous relationship is just as bad as the terrorist attacks on 9-11. And that a wife's unsubmissiveness is just as wicked in God's eyes as a campus shooter that kills innocent little children in a grade school. And and a child, a teenager or a young child that's disobedient to their parents and lies is just as evil to the Lord as a child sex offender is. But when we whitewash our sin, we change the gospel so that we're no longer as bad as God says we are, and then the Lord is no longer as good as he says he is. But the gospel message unequivocally states that Jesus died for all sin because all sin separates people from God. That means that he died for the sins that only you know about or maybe your spouse knows about and nobody else does. So don't whitewash your sin to justify it. Uh, Second application, uh, application B, take the substitute instead of the curse. If you don't yet have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, if you're not sure where you're going to spend eternity, I want to urge you this evening to stop thinking you're good enough to earn your salvation or that you could be good enough or try hard enough to be good enough because you can't. You, You just can't. The burden of perfectionism can be lifted from you by simply agreeing with God that you're a sinner and needs to be saved, turning from your sin back to God, and by believing by faith that Jesus died for your sin and trusting in him alone for your salvation. It doesn't matter how long you've been coming to church or how many Christians you know. If you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I want to make sure you get one. I'll, I'm available after the service if you need to talk. We have story booklets at the information table that we can give you that illustrate this and explain how you can start a relationship with Jesus. So, don't whitewash your sin to justify it and be, take the substitute instead of the curse. When I was in, uh, when I was in junior high school, I had a homeroom teacher named Mr. Montgomery. He strategically assigned seats in the classroom to split up friend groups so they wouldn't be disruptive during class. Anybody have a teacher that does, did that? Is that an old thing, or do they still do that? Yeah. Okay, teachers still do it. Uh, being a Vietnam veteran, he served in the Air Force, and um, he, was a, he was a disciplinarian. But he was, a, he was a, as my kids would say today, he was chill. Back then, we said... He was cool. We respected him. Um, but he, I, I, he did this, I think, so that you know, certain friend groups wouldn't talk and disrupt the class. And so Mr. Montgomery had me seated in the rear of the class, but on the opposite side from my friends, which in the classroom ranking system he had established, basically that meant Carrie Knack's not a troublemaker, but Carrie Knack does have friends that will talk to him during class and vice versa. So I'm going to put him on the opposite side, but in the back, because I don't need to watch him as closely. Well, one particular spring day, we had a substitute teacher. 
And my friends and I loved it when we had a substitute teacher because it usually meant we weren't going to have to work hard that day and we could get away with switching seats to be closer to one another and talk during class. So I persuaded a classmate of mine to switch seats with me so I could sit next to my best friend and talk it up all day. Now keep in mind, this is before we had smartphones, so we actually talked. <laughs> Instead of texting, we talked with our friends and maybe we wrote notes and passed them across the aisles and stuff. While taking attendance, the substitute teacher, whose name was Mrs. Miller, called out my name, going through the alphabet, Carrie Nag, and she says, uh, hmm, aren't you supposed to be sitting over there? To which I responded, uh, no, I don't think so. This is before I was a born-again Christian, by the way. To which she responded, Ah, uh, yeah, that's what it says here on the seating chart. You're supposed to be over there. I think you need to get back in your original seat. To which my whole day, you know, it's 8.30 in the morning, and I just had great plans that day. What was I going to do with my friends in class? My whole day just got blown to pieces right there. We had, we had, it was going to be an awesome day until that happened. Realizing I, had found, I was found out and I had no other recourse, I obliged, so I migrated back to my original seat. Then Mrs. Miller surprised me in front of the class as I'm moving my stuff back over to my original seat. She says, um, is your, knack, 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 knack. is your father's name Stuart? To which I responded, uh, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. I can't remember. <laughs> then she said nothing else. Hmm, okay. So she made her way through the rest of the alphabet, and the rest of the day went on fine, and we just tried to make the best of it, even though we had a sub, but weren't able to really capitalize on having a sub. So my mother never found out about that mishap, and I had no consequences and got to enjoy all the privileges of a reasonably well-behaved, not-too-sinful 11-year-old. Well, at that time in my life, my parents were, uh, they were divorced. So my mom had custody of my brother and I. We lived with her Monday through Friday and most of the month. And then my father, he was remarried, lived on the other side of town, and he had visitations with us two weekends a month, every other weekend. So uh, thus, for most of my childhood years, I split time between two very different worlds. Mom's house had one set of rules, and then dad's house had another set of rules. And usually what happened at mom's house, if I got grounded at mom's house, I would not be grounded at dad's house for that thing. Because my mom and dad didn't get along well and didn't coordinate their punishment. So if I was in the middle of groundation, as my kids like to call it, and I had a visitation with my dad coming up, I could get a couple days relief before I went back in the slammer again and went home to mom's. So that was my life for several years. But that all changed... Ten days after Mrs. Miller was in my class. You see, over that course of ten days, my 11-year-old brain had forgotten completely about what happened. So I go to my father's house Saturday morning. 
And shortly after arriving, my father sat me down and asked me why I thought it was okay to be disrespectful to a substitute teacher at school. Now, you have to understand, first of all, you got to understand the context here. Number one, I, I was like, what sub? I couldn't even remember 10 days ago. Second of all, my father never got involved in my education. He just, that was something mom handled. And then thirdly, that was in mom's world. That was on the other side of town. This was dad's world. It was like an escape. It was a vacation from chores and everything. Well, to my shock and horror, I found out that Mrs. Miller was a neighbor of my dad's, and Mrs. Miller's daughter was good friends with my stepsister, and they played together. And so one day, Mrs. Miller mentions to my dad, hey, I had your son in my class, and we had this issue with the seating chart, and so on and so forth. So after a stern talking to you, on the Saturday morning, beginning of my weekend at Dad's house, I got grounded at Dad's house and was stuck there for the rest of the weekend because of what I had done 10 days earlier to Mrs. Miller. Now, for many years, I thought what I did at my mother's world would never affect me in my father's world. But I learned a gospel truth that day that I'll never forget. And here's the big idea. I can't let you go home without a big idea. And so I hope you didn't put your notes away. The big idea I wanted to get to is this. If you don't receive and respect the substitute, you'll reap the consequences of your sin. If you don't receive and respect the substitute, you'll reap the consequences for your sin. I learned that with Mrs. Miller and my dad. And boy, it's true with the gospel. If you deny Christ, play games with Christ, pretend to know Christ, but don't actually receive him by faith and commit and give your heart to him, you will reap the consequences for your sin instead of him taking your place. Jesus Christ took your place and my place on the cross so that we could have the benefits that Jesus already had as God's son. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, I just want to ask that you would take the truths that we've looked at this evening and that by your spirit you would sear them on our hearts. Would you help us, Father, those of us that do know Christ as our Savior, to remember that we cannot earn our salvation, and that's a good thing. Because the burden of having to be perfect was lifted when your Son lived a perfect life for us instead. And Lord, for those that know your Son personally, that have somehow began to subtly believe that crafty lie from the adversary that their sin wasn't all that bad, that they were a really a decent person before they became a Christian. Lord, would you remind them 
with all the gore and the graphic violence of the cross and the blood that was shed, that their sin was that bad. It was ugly and offensive and repulsive. And Lord, for those that are here today that don't yet know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, would you reveal Jesus to them? Would you help them, Lord, to take that step of faith, believing that Jesus died for them and was resurrected three days later? Would you open the eyes of their heart so that they can see the Savior that loves them and spread his arms out for them? And Lord, please, would you help them to forsake their sins so they can have forgiveness in Christ? We love you, and we praise you for being our substitute this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.